just feel the presence of the Lord in this house already? Can we just give him praise? I'm so thankful for the presence of God. Was any, were any of you in the 11 o'clock service last week? Anybody? A few of you? Um, I don't want to make you feel bad if you were in the early service. Because <laughs> we had a great move of God in there as well. And God ministered through, through the music and the word as he always does. And we had an altar service. But something very special, unique, um, different, just Supernatural happened in the 11 o'clock service, and God just completely took over the service. I mean, just, and we let him. And, you know, that's, that's, we have to let him. I mean, we can, we can override that. And I'm afraid, possibly, that I've overridden him before to keep things, you know, hey, you got to be, don't want to scare anybody, and, you know, that kind of stuff. But God really spoke during that, that time last, last Sunday at 11 o'clock. The, the, after the music, it just kept ramping up. And we're just going to be who we are. We're not going to worry about being like any church down the street. We're not going to worry. Um, you know, I wrestle with these things. Not, not with being like another church, but with, with you know, scaring people. Or <laughs> people coming in and, and being like, ooh, I'm not ever coming back to this. I'm not for weird. I'm anti-weird, but I am for what God wants to do. And I am for being who God has called us to be, a unique niche. Why well, be like somebody else? God has a unique niche for this church. And he's designed me as a leader and as a pastor to, to lead this season for this church. And I've got to be who I'm called to be. And um, I'm not the most seeker-friendly person uh, in my messages. And I think he has called us to, to dig deeper, to go deeper, and to be a people of God who are being trained and challenged and grown and developed and connected to their purpose. That's what we, who we are. And so that's who we're going to be. And so I just wanted to kind of let, fill you in because I know a lot of you could normally come to the, to the 930 service. And so I don't know what exactly that's going to look like. We may end up pulling this service back a little bit from 930 to 9 to give us a little more time. We always feel rushed in this service to get done before the 11. And I think that's one of the reasons that we don't see some of the things happen that we do in the 11. Amen? Um, that's just a simple thing of time. Giving God time. And so... Um, at the first of the year, March, maybe somewhere in there, we may be shifting a little bit with our times to give this service a little more time to kind of melt in his presence a little bit more and just kind of see what he wants to do, put our toe in the water a little bit more, maybe eventually jump into the deep end. And again, I'm, I'm not about being weird. And, and if you, How many have been raised Pentecostal, been in Pentecostal churches? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about some of that is amazing and is totally God and it's totally wonderful and I'm all about it. I'm not talking about pushing people down in the altars and, and, being, and all that stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a sovereign move of God and being open to what he wants and what he's directing. Amen. Well, quickly, before I jump into the message, um, I talked a little bit about next level during the offering. And, I, you know, one of those projects that we're going to do here in the church is a lobby remodel. Well, I don't like to let the grass grow under the car, so we are going to start in that January 1. January 1. How about that for getting rolling? So what I need, we don't want to spend money on labor, a bunch of labor, okay? 
uh, we're going to be doing a total remodel with hardwood and all of that in the lobby, and we got to break up all of that tile. <laughs> How many watch HGTV? Anybody? You know what I'm talking about. You, if you maybe enjoy that kind of thing, the demo. So Sunday, January the 1st, we need some volunteers to stay after the 11 o'clock service. We're going to feed you, and then we are going to demo. If you want to break something, come on, and, and, and then we're going to call it out and get it all prepped and ready for hardwood the next day. And then all through the week, we'll need volunteers in the evenings to come in. How many remember volunteering, actually, and, and coming to church on, any, on a day other than Sunday and coming in and, and just, come on, only three of you, but that's fine. I'm, I'm, we're about to instruct you in that. We're going to go old school, and we're going to spend the week here at the church getting this thing done. And it's going to be amazing. There's a sign-up sheet on the Connection uh, Center out there, Guest Central. If you would like to be a part of that, there's days you can sign up for any, multiple days or just one day, okay, or evening. So just sign up for that. It's going to be amazing. All right, we're in now in week four of Jonah. And actually, the 11 o'clock service did not get week three. I mean, we, we just worshiped right on through the entire time. So, uh, so they, you're a little ahead of the game. I told them to listen to the podcast. But we are now in week four of Jonah. This will be our final week for this series. And our title today is The City. The City. Jonah finally makes it to Nineveh. Let's give it, like I have been in the past, let's give a real quick review to catch you up if you're new. Uh, Jonah was already a prophet. Remember that. Jonah was already a prophet. This is just his latest assignment. And this assignment was extremely clear, but it was a difficult assignment. And he did not agree with the assignment. And he went the other way. I feel like it was so clear and so difficult and so much against what he wanted to do that he just tried to embrace the whole thing at once and was overwhelmed by it. Because Nineveh was a wicked, terrible city, and they were the enemies of Israel. And so the big idea for that whole week was what? Surrender. Listen, when God speaks, we may not agree. We may get overwhelmed with the thought of it if we try to embrace the whole thing. Listen, you can't do that. The main thing is just say yes. And don't worry about the details at first. Give the details to God. He'll handle it. If he's called you, he'll take care of the details. And week two was all about the storm. God sent a miraculous storm to get Jonah's attention. But Jonah, at that point, I think, was so depressed about being out of God's will, he was below deck during the storm asleep. And I talked about that depressed people often sleep to get away from the problem, away from the issue. And so he was below deck asleep I talked about another storm that Jesus was in with his disciples that was very similar. The water coming into the boat, the water about to take them out. But Jesus was asleep, but he wasn't depressed. He was at complete and total peace because he is the prince of peace. And in part three, Jonah gets thrown overboard. You know the story. And I think he fully expected to die in that moment. How many agree with that? I think he fully expected to die, but he didn't want to die in that condition. He knew he was out of God's will. He knew what it was like to be in God's will. He knew what it was like to be the mouthpiece and the voice of God, but he knew he had rebelled and he did not want to die in that condition. So he gives kind of a deathbed confession and God gives him a second chance through providing the big fish, the whale, which wasn't really a whale. 
okay? The big fish. And so God gives him a second chance. The whole goal there was to provide for Jonah, not to punish him. And the goal in your life, God's not trying to punish you. He's trying to provide for you. And sometimes there's correction involved. But sometimes we get the wrong perspective about what God's trying to do. He's not up there with a lightning bolt. He's wanting to provide for us. The danger I ended with last week, the danger is that the whole process of provision and restoration is halted. It's stopped when we try to cling to our own opinion and cling to our own stubborn ways and cling to our own preferences. That whole process is stopped and then we begin to drift away from God. And the scary thing is, if you drift far enough away, you don't even know it. You don't even realize it. And that's what Jonah was talking about. Unfortunately, Jonah goes right back to that. We're going to find that out today. We left Jonah on the beach after being vomited out by the whale. Can you imagine? This dude must have looked good. I mean, he must have had every hair in place. Can you imagine seeing him coming down the street preaching? I mean, he, he probably had fish guts hanging off of him. The Bible says he had seaweed wrapped around his head. He had a seaweed do-rag. I mean, if this guy had been approaching me, I'd have been like, look, I'll do whatever you say. Just don't come over here. You stink. You smell. I don't, he probably was whitewashed from the, the stomach acid and all of that stuff. It's, it's crazy. Let's see what happens in Jonah chapter 3. I'm in the NIV starting with verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Everybody say a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. By the way, it's the same message I gave you before. We've wasted a little time. So this is Jonah's second chance. Listen, hey, everybody, aren't you glad we serve a God of the second chance? Give him praise this morning because the third and the fourth and come on, in the fifth, the Bible is full of examples of people who God restored, brought back from sin, and used again. Aren't you thankful that he doesn't just put you on a shelf somewhere after you mess up and say, no, I'm never, I I can't use you anymore because of your sin. There is a process of restoration, a process of forgiveness. There is a way that we can be restored. The Bible is full of, I think about Rahab. I think about Samson. I think about David. The Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, and that's just a few. So Jonah travels to Nineveh. And I know if you grew up in Sunday school, you you studied Jonah. That was one of the big ones. And the picture book always has Jonah being, you know, thrown up onto the beach, and there's Nineveh right there. Well, Nineveh wasn't on a beach. So that, that was impossible. He still had hundreds of miles to travel at that point. He's had a long way to go. So when he arrives... Now, you've got to get this. This is a major city with huge walls and people everywhere, outside and inside. And so he goes through these massive gates into this city. And I can only imagine. Oh, the Bible says that the thing is so big it takes three days to walk, to go from one end to the other. That's big. And I can only imagine what was going through his head as he walked through that gate and the sounds and the sights 
and the smells assaulted him. He began walking through the city and began to see this pagan culture come to life. He had heard stories. That's why he didn't want to go. He had heard things about this city. And he began to see things, probably atrocities like child prostitution at the temples. He began to see open sin in the streets. And he's walking, and he doesn't take three days to start preaching. After a while, the anger, the more he walks, the more he sees, the angrier he gets. Are you getting this? He's walking along, and finally he just explodes with his message, but it's not a message of hope. It's not a message of compassion. Listen to what he says in Jonah 3, verse 4. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds. More likely, he shouted at the crowds. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And that's his message. That's his only message. He just goes from place to place to place and says, in 40 days you die. In 40 days you're going to be destroyed. In 40 days this place is going to be destroyed. In 40 days you're going to be taken in captivity. In 40 days it's all over. 40 days, 40 days you're dead. That's a great message, isn't it? Wouldn't you be encouraged? That's it. It was a message of doom, judgment, condemnation. Now think about this. You would think what we know about Nineveh and the people and how cruel they were, you would think they would not have taken too kindly to this crazy man with a seaweed seaweed do-rag shouting at them that they were going to die and be taken captive or killed in 40 days. You would have thought they would immediately have shut him up, put him in prison, or just killed him outright. I think he fully expected to die. I think he fully expected to be killed right there in the street or put in prison. We find out later he wanted to die. I think he fully expected to die, but something very unusual happened. Something he didn't expect and something he didn't want to happen. They listened. And they responded. Look at Jonah 3, 5. The Ninevites believed God. Big G. They had a lot of gods. One of the main gods they worshipped was Dagon. This wasn't Dagon they were talking about. This was Jehovah God that they believed. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, man, a lot, this huge city and the message gets all the way to the king. He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Verse seven, this is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up, listen, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. What was he saying? You've got to pray and you've got to turn from your evil ways. You've got to pray and you've got to turn from your evil ways. Who knows? God may yet relent. That word means change his mind. God may change his mind and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So this supernatural move that, has be, be, that began back at the beginning 
When his, with, 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 with Jonah's call and with the storm and with the whale and with all this stuff, the supernatural move of God that has permeated this whole story continues in Nineveh with this unprecedented response from Jonah's message. This is a pagan, wicked city full of idolatry and every sin imaginable. And listen, listen, the king himself comes off of his throne takes off his royalty, takes off the symbol of his authority and humbles himself and calls a citywide fast and, everybody say and, and a change in behavior. Folks, the city of Nineveh was in revival. We were singing about revival in our song today. They were in revival. Revival is when life, listen, when life enters something dead and brings it and revives it back to life. Now, in church world, we think about revival as, hey, we're going down to the First Baptist and we're going to have, we're going to schedule a, we're going to bring evangelist in and have a, help me now, revival. It's not, not rocket science, I'm just... Trying to get you to engage. Not a trick question. It's a set of meetings to us. That's not true revival. That's not true revival. Look at the screen. Revival is a sovereign move of God that affects everyone in an entire community. Got three amens. Let me say it again. Revival is a sovereign move of God that affects everyone in an entire community. Anybody want that? Anybody have time for that? Is anybody willing to be inconvenienced? <laughs> oh. The evidence, listen, listen, the evidence of true revival is a change in behavior. The evidence of true revival is life change. Now I've studied in my you know, schooling and things like that I've studied the, the Welsh revival. Azusa Street, how many have heard of those? I, I had friends friends. I never got made it to Pensacola to the Brownsville. Anybody? Make, make it down there? Several. Several of you. Um, that went on five years something like that. Um one of my good friends is Lyndall Cooley, who, who is the worship pastor during that, the worship director. God used mightily during that. The former worship pastor is my mentor, uh, worship mentor. But I never made it myself. But in 1994, we brought an evangelist in to the church to have a revival. It was a set of meetings. But at the end of the week, instead of the attendance dropping... And everything kind of wrapping up, it increased. And people were still getting saved. And it was getting more powerful instead of wrapping up. And so the pastor said, hey, let's go another week. So we went another week. And instead of it going down, like you would think, because people have jobs and kids are in school. And, you know, we, we got baseball and we got soccer and all this stuff. Instead of it going down, it went up again. 
Men who had never had a relationship with God were on their face crying before God under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So he said, hey, let's go another week. So we went a third week, and then a fourth week, and then a fifth week. And I was there every single night. It was, of course, I was 19, so 20, whatever it was. You know, come on. Come on, I'm being honest here. I know that it's not easy. But man, it was exhausting, but there was nothing. I've never experienced anything like it because I saw marriages put back together. People who had been divorced, remarry. Families put back together. My cousin, who knew nothing other, he was a professional musician, knew nothing other than sex, drugs, and rock and roll all of his life in his late 50s, ran to the altar and just fell before God and was miraculously saved. That's, the people from the community who, who were not, this was a Pentecostal thing, very Pentecostal, and people who were not Pentecostal were coming in and were like, "What? we have to just see. We just have to see it. It was affecting everything. Everything. That's revival. Let's see what happens with Nineveh in verse 10. When God saw what they did. Everybody say did. When God saw what they did, not just how they prayed. Come on, I'm preaching. But what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. He relented. He changed his mind and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, when I was reading this and studying this, talking about praying and turning from our wicked ways and doing this, what's the scripture that pops in your head? 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who were called by my name will humble themselves and... And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven. And then will I heal their land. It's not enough just to pray and get spiritual. That's one of the weaknesses, I think, in the Pentecostal church. We love to have the shout. Woo-hoo! But when it actually comes to doing something... <laughs> And living it out, we're a little, come on, I'm, you're not going to have revival without both. And by the way, if my people, he's not talking about, a lot of times I hear people put the United States in there. If the United States will, no, 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 no. We don't live, we no longer live in a Christian nation. I hope you understand that. We live in a post-Christian nation. This is talking about people of God, the church. If my church will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. If we're going to have, does anybody want to have revival? If we're going to have a revival at New Life that affects Canton and affects this community, we're going to have to pray and turn. Pray and turn. Pray, say it with me. Pray and turn. Pray and turn. It's that simple, but it's not. It's the hardest thing in the world. But with God, all things, Jesus said, are possible. And I think that's what he wants for us. I'm never going to get finished with this. 
That's why we got to back the service up a little bit. I want to wrap up the series and see how Jonah responds to this, this move of God in Nineveh. I mean, most prophets would have been doing backflips, right? With the, 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 I mean, they, there's so many that, that said things and nobody listened. And, you know, the Jeremiah's the weeping prophet, always crying because nobody ever listened to him. I mean, Jonah goes in there and tells them they're all going to die. And they repent and are having revival. I mean, most evangelists, I mean, would just be absolutely rejoicing. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. <laughs> Let's pause just one second. Let's pick up the pattern here. At the very beginning of the story, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. And the next line is, but Jonah ran away. Then God sent the storm miraculously to get his attention, but Jonah was asleep. God provided the great fish to rescue him, to provide for him. He gets him back to Nineveh. He finally preaches the message. God supernaturally moves. They have revival. People turn and repent from their wickedness. You're getting it. Jonah got angry. I'm absolutely amazed at God's patience. I would be moving on <laughs> to the next available candidate. Anybody else? I would be ready to throw the lightning bolt. But then I have to pause. And as I'm tempted to pick up the rocks and throw them at Jonah, I have to pause and think about my own behavior at different times in my life. And then I quickly put the rocks back down because my behavior hasn't been any different at times, not any better. Come on. Verse 2. I've got to hurry. Golly. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at a home. This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending. He's saying, he's having a two year old tantrum. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew this would happen. That's why I didn't want to come. Now, Lord, just take away my life, for it's better for me to die. Than, 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 than to live. What he's saying is, Lord, if you're not going to allow the things that I've prophesied to come to pass, then I just want to die. He made it all about himself. How could he do that? How could anybody have that response? I'll give you one word. One word. One word. Hatred. That's offensive. That is an offensive word. It's a in our culture, that's a hate crimes, right? It's a bad word. Look at the screen. Hatred will take captive every ounce of joy that God sends your way. Hatred will take captive every ounce of joy that God sends your way. God used Jonah to bring redemption to an end entire city. No prophet in history, no evangelist in history, not even Billy Graham has seen the results of this one man. 
It's every missionary's dream. It's every evangelist's heartbeat. It should, listen, listen, it should have brought him great joy. But hatred stole it all from him. In Nazi Germany, we know that Hitler was a sociopath. And we can understand sociopaths do crazy things and they, they, they you know, enjoy killing people and all those things. But not every, was every soldier under him a, a psychopath or a sociopath? No. How then were they able to do and why, how could they, they do the atrocities to these innocent Jewish people that they did? Because they were taught to hate. And that hatred took over their heart and their life. It was a, it was a lie, but they, 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 they embraced it. And it fueled the atrocities that took place. Even in normal young men who were 18, 19, 20 years old. Hatred. King Saul, God's anointed man. And David comes on the scene and does his thing and starts getting attention and King Saul instead of celebrating that because he had the anointing of God on his life but instead of celebrating the anointing of God on David he became paranoid and angry and eventually that turned into hatred and it stole everything from him everything now you may be saying Pastor Allen um, I don't hate anybody <laughs> time out you're going that direction just back up I don't hate any body but if you've been hurt and probably that's everyone in the room if you've been hurt and you, you don't allow God to work forgiveness in your heart for that person that anger that, that, that hurt turns to anger and then the anger, if not dealt with, turns to bitterness. And as that grows, it becomes hatred. And it, listen, listen, at that point, you don't even know it. That's why you're saying there's no way I could. You don't even realize it. You would never call it that, but that's what it is. Verse 4. But the Lord replied, Is it right? Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And, and Jonah doesn't even give a reply. I can just see him. He's a two-year-old at this point. And then he leaves. He says, verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat, on it shade, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Oh, well, praise God. Jonah is finally smiling over the plant. He's angry about redemption. He's angry about restoration. But he's happy about the plant. He's mad at God for saving an entire people group, but he's happy about a stupid plant that's providing him a temporary shade, a temporary comfort. Make no mistake, God is setting him up for an object lesson. Verse 7, but at dawn, the next day, God provided, there's our word again, a worm. 
which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. That's the second time he's asked to die. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And then Jonah ends his silence and he says, it is. He screams at God. It is. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Third time that he talks about wanting to be dead. And I'm going to go PG-13 here, parents, just for a second. I'm going to tell you exactly what the Hebrew says here. It actually says in the Hebrew, and I'm so damn angry that I just want to die. He curses God. Verse 10. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it Grow, Jonah, your priorities are messed up. You are thinking about yourself. Your heart is so messed up that you can't even see. You're worried about something that doesn't matter. And I just saved an entire city. And before you start throwing rocks at Jonah, we do the same thing. We get so concerned, so twisted, so so preoccupied with things that do not matter when there's a world outside that's going to hell. And we need to be used of God. And we're worried about stuff that is here today and gone tomorrow, just like the plant. And I should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there will be more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, and also many animals. Many, many scholars believe that the right hand from the left hand, he's talking about children. Little children who don't know their left from their right. He's saying there's 120,000 children in this city. Should I not at least be concerned for them? And should you not at least be concerned for the babies? That'll preach. There is no resolution to this story. It ends right there. The tension just hangs. It's like any musicians in the house know what a suspended chord is? It's a suspended chord that never gets resolved. Do you know that Mozart, you know, Amadeus Mozart, that, you know, the, the, he was very, very young and he liked to sleep in and his, drove his wife crazy. And she would literally go to the piano in their little apartment to get him out of the bed. Y'all are like this back here in my music group. To get him out of the bed, she would play a suspended chord and then not resolve it. And it would, he would go nuts. He would literally get up out of the bed and go resolve the chord. It drove him crazy. That's what this story, that's the way the story ends. We don't know if Jonah ever repented and got right. I said this before, but we can't rewrite Jonah's story. But we can change the trajectory of our own. Many of you know I grew up at Mount Perrin Church, the one central down, down in Atlanta. 
and I was there in the early 80s, and in the early 80s, Dr. Paul Walker, the, the pastor there, received the, the phone call that no parent wants to receive. On the way home to Thanksgiving, his son and his daughter-in-law were in a terrible car accident. She was critically injured, and he was killed. And I didn't get to attend the graveside, but this is what I was told happened. Standing next to the casket of his eldest son, Paul Dana, Dr. Walker sang, God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. How could a man sing, God is so good, standing next to the casket of his son? It makes no human sense whatsoever. But that Listen, listen, that is the strength that comes from the joy of the Lord. It's not about happiness. Jonah was happy about the plant that was gone the next day. Happiness is fleeting. It will fail you. Does God want you to have happy? Yes, of course God wants us to be happy, but he knows that's not going to be the case every day. The joy of the Lord is so much more powerful than that. Dr. Walker wasn't happy about his son being killed. I mean, come on. But he received grace and strength, listen, because he never lost his joy. Amen. I'm going to skip the next slide for time. If you're only seeking happiness, I've got a good friend, good, good friend, Christian, good friend. Folks, you hear me? Good friend. I love him. His conversation always ends up going to the happiness, just trying to be happy, just trying to find happiness, just happiness, happiness, happiness. If that's all you seek, you're going to be disappointed over and over and over again. You're going to soon find yourself like he is sometimes in an emotional hole that will seem impossible for you to escape. And that's where alcohol comes in. That's where drugs come in. That's where overeating comes in. Teenagers, that's where, you know, taking the, the, eye, the, the earbuds and just lo- trying to lose yourself in some world comes in. And it never helps for long. There may be a temporary reprieve, chemical reprieve or something, but it never, ever, ever, ever lasts and it leads to bondage. Maybe you're on that emotional merry-go-round today. The answer is not just being happy, but receiving the joy of the Lord. 
and allowing that joy to become your strength. Even when the day or the season is not happy. That kind of life-sustaining joy that I'm preaching about is available this morning. But it only comes, listen to me, I'm closing, trying to. It only comes through letting go of unforgiveness that possibly has creeped up and become bitterness and maybe even to the point of hatred you don't even know it. The big idea, look at the screen. Joy. We got that big idea. There we go. Joy, listen, joy. Okay. Let's take care of that. Joy and unforgiveness cannot reside in the same heart. Joy, the strength that I'm talking about. (laughs) Y'all are killing me. (laughs) Joy and unforgiveness cannot reside in the same heart. But I know the great physician who can do heart surgery. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Come on, does anybody know what I'm talking about? It is available this morning. The joy of the Lord can be your strength no matter how unhappy or happy. Whether you're on the mountaintop or in the valley or somewhere in between, the joy of the Lord can be your strength, but it cannot reside in the same place as unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred. It couldn't in Jonah. It stole everything from him. And it can in you and it can in me.